0: A lot of what we've been um, trying to describe in the instructions and a lot of what we do in the interviews is trying to help each of us find uh, what we call balanced effort, balanced energy. The place that we keep talking about of really relaxed yet very vividly awake and alert it sounds like such a paradox and a lot of our practice is really not so much about what's going on but about finding, recognizing and learning how to dwell more often in this space of absolute non-doing and total presence. So, for example, a lot of when we talk about opening to hearing it's to give that sense of nothing to do yet the knowing is spontaneous the sounds arise by themselves and then going to the breath and noticing that same thing and then the next thing we're talking about is really connect with the breath really sustain the attention get very precise you know and you can wonder what happened to open total non-doing here we're being asked to put forth this incredible effort to meet every moment of experience with Openness, And at the same time, we're being told to do absolutely nothing. And how do we, what are we talking about in the first place? And how do we find that? How can we learn to dance that line in our practice? So I want to try and talk a little bit about that tonight. This delicate balance of relaxed alertness. How to work with the openness without it becoming being lost in space. How to work with precise, connected attention without it turning into tight, controlling, you know, being wound so tight we're about to break. So it's really about learning to um, recognize and explore to begin with this mental quality of energy. It's something we often don't recognize as a mental state, a mental factor that comes and goes, energy. It's impermanent, like every other experience that we have, every other mental state. So sometimes the energy is strong and present and flowing, sometimes it's really low. Often we don't recognize that it's simply a mental factor rising and falling due to conditions we tend to identify with energy and take it very personally when it leaves and think that we're doing something wrong and think that the answer is to push, 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 strive, strive, strive. If we force, then the energy is going to come. And we tend to think relaxation means you just disconnect altogether just open up, space out, kick back, you know, you turn on the TV if you had that option. And there happens to be a broad middle ground between those two. So I just want to talk about some ways tonight that have been helpful to me to keep reconnecting with this delicate balance of energy, what's called wise effort or right effort in the practice. So one aspect I want to begin with that I find is essential to being in that space of really flowing, balanced attention is this quality of interest, which we've been going on about. Get interested in the breath, get interested in your feet. And I know that's not always exactly what the experience is. You know, and the thought is often, and people can say, oh, interested in my breath and interested in my movements all day. This is such an exhausting proposition. How can one possibly sustain that level of interest? You know, it's, it's just, it takes too much energy. It's too tiring. And then we're tired just thinking about it before we've even explored if it's possible. But when there is, True interest in our experience, then uh, actually sustained focused attention is quite effortless. And in, in practice, here, of course, you might experience it momentarily, but in our lives, we all know this experience. For I know all of you have different work that you do that you're all quite involved in, and I'm sure you can just think of different times in your work. Over, I'm not just talking about five minutes or so, but over a period of maybe some hours where your interest was just totally engaged, where you weren't wandering, or maybe you weren't working at the computer, maybe you were working in a courtroom, maybe you were working with a group of people or writing or singing or whatever, but where the interest is completely engaged, there's not this sense of, oh, I can't pay attention to this anymore, it's too much trouble. It's, It's... Effortless at that point. And even a lot of what brings the interest in the beginning might be a sense of greater motivation. So say in your work, you might begin it, and what might sustain the interest is a sense that you're doing it for some particular good cause. It might just be for the payoff of having something be the way you want it to be. But when you're actually immersed in the work, if you get like, getting lost thinking about the motivation, the interest actually isn't there. When you're really interested, you're just there with the work. And all of us know that. And it doesn't even have to come from a so-called pure, you know, or wholesome motivation like compassion or trying to help people. I uh, One of my favorite... Um, Examples that really brought home to me the universality of how interest brings focused attention, and that that's effortlessly available to all of us, it was a few years ago. I was um, in San Francisco visiting friends in January, during the time of the Super Bowl, and I'm not a football fan particularly, but everybody I know in San Francisco basically is a, is a football fan. And that year their team, the 49ers, was playing in the Super Bowl. And it was fascinating to me because for those, however long it goes on, three hours or so, it's like the whole city stopped. And I know a lot of people in San Francisco, and they all got together in little groups between five and 20, just fixated. So I was in a group of about 10 people fixated on this game. I mean, as soon as the game would start, no talking. It wasn't even thought about. There was no diversion. Nobody did anything else. Just totally, totally focused. And no one was saying, this takes so much energy to pay attention to this game. It's really so hard. I don't know if I can keep it up. It was completely effortless. And it's also interesting that as soon as the commercial came on, that quality of interest was totally gone, just turned off like a switch. So it's not that the the interest and that focused attention and the steadiness of it isn't accessible to us. It's more, uh, what's more interesting to me actually, is to see what is it that we choose to get interested in, and why is it that so many people can get so fascinated by a football game. I mean, these are people who are deeply committed to non-harming and non-violence in their lives, and who are really, you know, spending their lives trying to do things to help themselves one another and the planet. And they're so engrossed with these guys beating each other up on the field. It's really quite an interesting phenomenon to me, but okay, that's an aside. (laughs) (laughs) What's even more interesting is I could care less about football, but being in their company, I got really involved in the game too. And that's what's really interesting to (laughs) see. It's sort of catching. So partly on this retreat, you know, you can catch interest in the meditation from each other. So, okay, I'm not not trying to say that the interest, the quality of attention in that football game is not exactly the same as the quality of attention in our practice because there's certain elements of motivation that aren't so wholesome. For example, I don't think anyone was watching that game without a real desire for one particular team to win. You know, so there was an, an, an ongoing quality of craving in the motivation, you know, or maybe hatred of the other team or whatever. But it's not just pure interest, even though there's a lot of talk about the artistry of the game and all this stuff. There's definitely <laughs> a sense of, of a little bit of a not not so wholesome motivation. But still, the potential is there. And why is it whether we're football fan or something else, you know, whether it's a movie like Joseph talked about, why is it we can get so effortlessly present for periods of time for some things? But it can be so difficult when we come here to bring that quality of interest to what's happening in our life. I mean whatever's arising in our experience in this moment, that is absolutely all we have in the world, in our life, is this moment. And how much of the time are we not that interested in it? We'd rather have another moment. We'd rather think of a different moment that happened five years ago. We'd rather make up something that could happen next, but we don't have that um, interest that just lets us be fully present for this moment. The sense of picking and choosing... of course we talked some about I talked some about that the other night that part of that picking and choosing comes from our liking the pleasant and not liking the unpleasant it also comes from our sense of evaluating what we think is worthwhile what we think isn't worthwhile and a lot of the time in practice here what we are interested in is just something that is it's sort of mundane it's maybe not intense enough Or it's really familiar. I mean, have you ever had the thought, oh, the breath again. I've felt the breath so many times. I really know the breath. Let's move on to something more interesting. I read an article in the um, San Francisco paper a few years ago of a young woman, 21, who uh, had cystic fibrosis, was born with it, of course. And, And so at 21, she was on the verge of death and she got a partial lung transplant from both parents. And it was just um, quoting an interview with her, and it was it was so beautiful. She was so upbeat, and she was saying, "I don't actually have it with me, but she was saying something. Like, it's so wonderful to breathe, you know, air, a clear breath is just the most wonderful thing I could imagine in this life." And I thought, ah, you know, how many breaths have I taken in my life? Even that I'm aware of, I've taken a lot of breaths in my life. But how often have I brought that quality of real interest to it, you know? And how would it be if we didn't breathe for five minutes, you know? Even two minutes, we'd be pretty interested in it. So it's often this this not even conscious judgment, it's too familiar, I know it. I've experienced this before. I don't have to pay attention to this pain. I know about this pain. I've looked at this pain. Oh, I know this emotion, this anxiety. I've experienced it a thousand times. Let's move on to something else. And what we're doing is denying ourselves the interest for our life because that's our life at this moment. So really, what our practice is, the the, the quality, the practice of mindfulness It it gives us the skill to bring our attention more closely into whatever's happening. And sure, at the first moment, we might not be interested in the breath. But what we find out is that when our attention is more connected with what's happening, the interest is actually enhanced. So when you're really there with the breath, there can be times when the breath is just fascinating. It's not that the fascination or the interest is inherent in the object or in the breath. The interest is in the quality of attention. So it's that willingness to bring the attention that will again arouse the sense of interest. And this unconscious or sometimes conscious uh, tendency, we, tendency we have to evaluate what is sort of worth being interested in is so insidious that we don't notice it. And what makes it even more sort of... Um, I don't really like to use the word dangerous but maybe to stay with insidious, is that this tendency to, to only be interested in certain things due to whatever conditioning actually distorts our perception of reality. And so without realizing it, by just following kind of like a leaf in the wind what we're interested in, we're not even perceiving what's actually self. An example... That was in Daniel Goldman's book of a few years ago, Vitalize Simple Truths. He uh, was talking about some psychological experiment where they had the, the subjects of the experiment were watching like a four or five minute video of a basketball game. I guess this is sports night. A basketball game a very, where some passing, where a lot of really fast ball changing was happening. And the assignment given to the subjects was to notice how many times the ball was passed. So that's what they were really interested in, how many times the ball was passed. That interest so narrows the vision that on that video, while this fast game was going on, they had a a woman in white with a parasol kind of stroll through the middle of the basketball court. And when when this was over and then they asked the subjects about how many times it was passed the ball, they all said, nobody mentioned what was that woman doing on the basketball court. And in fact, when the experimenters asked about it, it was kind of, what woman? You know, what are you talking about? And mostly they hadn't even noticed it. It's amazing, because you know, once that's pointed out, you couldn't watch that video and not see the woman. But when we're just going with selective interest, we miss so much and we don't even know it. So again, that's why we have the discipline in our practice because there'll be times when we're not interested. God knows. And the discipline is just not with pushing but with that gentle coming back to let us again connect just with the breath, just with the sensation, just with the emotion, not choosing what's happening but just connecting with what is and in that gentle being with it the interest will again come and again this connection and presence will begin to seem effortless. It won't be this sense of push, push, push anymore. The more we begin to pay attention in this way, the more mindfulness begins to allow us to, consciously or not, it just begins to happen, drop these distinctions of what's worth interest. And we begin to see... Are really experience the interrelatedness of all experience, seeing that our evaluations of this is good or bad or right or wrong or this particular experience is going to lead to opening in my practice and this particular experience is a total waste of time and we better do something to get rid of it. Begin to see that God a totally useless form of thinking, although of course we all do it and mostly unconsciously. But as Thich Nhat Hanh I really love the way Thich Nhat Hanh... He's a Vietnamese Zen master uh, who teaches meditation. He's a Buddhist monk, and he's also a peace activist. And I'm just saying this in case you don't know who he is. He's become quite well-known in in sort of meditation, mindfulness circles uh, in the last few years. He talks a lot about interrelatedness on very simple terms, the sort of talking about how we can't really say this is good and this is bad and divide experience or divide the world up in this way because everything is cause and effect. We can't say what cause leads to what effect. And He uses the example of we tend to like a rose and disdain garbage but actually as a rose dies it becomes garbage and then we take the garbage and use it for compost and it turns into a rose. How are we making these distinctions? How are we saying one thing is worthwhile and one thing isn't worth our interest. Actually, sometimes it's the thing we think isn't interesting that can open us up to much more uh, profound understanding. And the sublime and the painful are two sides of the same coin. In my experience, they often come so close together that I couldn't separate. I was uh, doing a self-retreat this spring of about four or five weeks and I was going through a period where a lot of a lot it was a painful retreat, a lot of terror, a lot of fear, a lot of uh, just the uncontrollability, the imminence of death, how one moment can change our whole life and nothing can change it back. That kind of that kind of retreat. And uh, nature was playing along too. It was it was in South Africa in a really beautiful location over some uh, green, beautiful hills and they had had the most incredible thunder and lightning storms I have ever experienced in my life. And I, there weren't many people there, and I didn't know anybody there, and I'd only been there a few days. And the day I hit into this sense of terror, complete uncontrollability, eminence of death, that was the night that they decided to have like the, the most amazing display of fireworks I've ever seen, just lightning every second, flashing for miles across the hill and flashing right into the room, it was really amazing. It went on for two or three hours, and of course, I was terrified. I was hiding under my blanket, going, "Oh, just fear, fear. It's just empty fear." <laughs> yeah, right. You know, <laughs> it was really—it quite funny. But uh, I really like the way the way sort of the universe will conspire to let us know what we need to pay attention to. In case I didn't notice that it was out of control, and that that brought up fear, here's another dose. But anyway, on that retreat. There were also moments of just opening to the beauty, to the exquisiteness of nature, and just the the joy of being alive. And it was so interesting because I found it was impossible to open to that without immediately there being a rush of fear, of the uncontrollability, of the eminence of death. In fact, they were so close together. The the, uh, incredible joy and connection with all life. Of course, as soon as we're connected with all life, we've got to connect to impermanence, to uncontrollability, because that is life. But it was like the the beauty and the pain were so close together that at times I really couldn't even tell the difference. But it was so clear that I couldn't pick one and say, this is worth paying attention to and I think I'll ignore this other one. I mean, at that point I didn't have a choice. But when we try to ignore one and just get interested in how beautiful something is, it doesn't work for very long. We really open to the whole and see that, that they feed each other. Another example where sometimes what seems horrible, so painful, is actually the door to real opening. Uh, I have a friend who has AIDS and he's, he's had HIV for some time. And in the last few years, as it does, it's, it's getting more intense. I mean, he's not, you know, he just has varying sicknesses. And what's been really interesting to watch, because I've known him for some 10 years or so, well before he was diagnosed, is to see how almost it goes together. The the more often he gets sick, the the deeper the disease goes, the more he's opening, his heart and his being is opening into a, a kind of a radiance that people are just drawn to him. And what his understanding just kind of flows out of him, he's a, he's a real beacon to many, many people in their lives. And at the same time, he's going through a real depth of suffering and terror. It's not like he's dancing through it, you know. It's really, the deeper the suffering goes, the deeper the radiance is coming out of him. And almost, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not wishing he were ill, you understand what I mean, but it's almost like you can't separate the two. It's, it's how life is the, the two go so close together there's no such thing as only beauty and even just opening to the mundane it doesn't have to you know be the horrible suffering of age just the mundane just opening to our footsteps just opening to being present when we think it isn't very interesting like the other night when I talked about opening to the sense of just being tired that's all just being with the tiredness not that interesting I don't expect anything to happen from it it's no big payoff and suddenly there's the awareness of beauty it comes together this is a poem um, from a Japanese woman of the 10th or 11th century although the wind blows terribly here the moonlight also links between, leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house I love that although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. An opening to one, open to all of it. And having experiences of that for yourself, my telling you, it might, you know, for a moment say, oh, well, maybe I'll look at something I didn't think I'd be interested in. But then when you do that, and you really have an experience for yourself, of how something that normally wouldn't be interesting can be compellingly interesting and open us to a much deeper understanding of ourselves, then again that will fuel the interest and the willingness to be present that lets this effortless awareness begin to flow more easily. Just so often, and people have said it here, can happen on a a retreat where there's a pain and after we've, of course, exhausted every possibility of avoiding, of bargaining, of moving, of trying to pretend we're paying attention while we're really paying attention to something. You know the whole scenario. And finally it dawns on us that maybe I could just really pay attention to this pain and nothing else and just be there with it. And again, that takes a balance of energy. That takes a time when the energy is sort of fresh and you can be there with it. And we really move into that pain and it gets really interesting. It might go away, it might not go away. Later the energy falls and you can't be there with it. But in that moment, it's really interesting. And often what it's seen is that it actually, sometimes you can't even call it pain. That so much of what was difficult was the fear the aversion the thinking about it and and all the resistance that was going in the same as with difficult emotion and that seeing that for oneself even if it's just for a moment can be transformative and it gives us the uh, it's called verified faith faith coming from your own experience and that's really where the confidence to bring interest where interest will spring from in your practice it doesn't take hours of seeing something like that. It just takes an instant to give more of a sense of verified say all oh, right. When I I don't think this is worth paying attention to, but maybe if I really do let myself sink into it and it gets interesting, it's my life. It's worth it. You know, and we have more of that motivation that isn't so hinged to wanting a future result. That's much more about being willing to be awake in our life. <clears throat> So when this interest is present, and of course this comes and goes too, of course, when it is present, the quality of balanced effort, of balanced energy where we're just there, we're not thinking about pushing or changing or needing to relax, we're just totally there, it becomes its own reward. There's no need at that point for a a motivation or trying to get to some other goal. And I've actually found in my own, actually my formal meditation practice, so that I mean on retreat, when I'm I'm noticing these qualities much more finely. Of course, it's present in our life all the time. But when the effort is balanced in this way, it's its own reward that really I've come to feel when I find a sense of real fulfillment, of almost happiness in my practice. And it can happen. It can happen that you actually are happy to be practicing this form of meditation. And that real sense of fulfillment and happiness comes from me not about something nice happening. It's got actually nothing to do with what's happening. It's when there's that quality of wholehearted interest and attention and effort, and the effort of just being present. And I know I can be having... But it seem like a day from hell in my practice. And what makes the difference between it being me calling it dead practice or me feeling fulfilled in it is this quality of interest. When I'm really there and willing to be with whatever happens, then whatever happens, I feel like the practice is going fine and there's nothing to do or nothing to change. And of course that changes too because everything changes so you can be in that quality a really balanced energy effort meeting what's happening with interest without making distinctions that effort though and i said it before I want to say it again the effort we're making the energy that's coming is only to be fully present with what's happening that's all there is no quality in this balanced effort of trying to change things of trying to move it on a little to the next place, of trying to make it more clear, of trying to get it to open. The effort can be wholehearted, absolutely complete, but only to fully be here for what is. You see how delicate that is. It's so delicate. For many of us, the deep habits of our lifetime or we do something to make a certain result happen and that's the only way we know how to put out an effort. And so we might for a moment meet meet something fully but so easily the expectation or the motivation the idea of what we're trying to make happen comes in and we think it's still this balanced effort but it's really expectation or wanting in disguise and we think we're meeting something fully, but somehow it gets a little bit skewed. And you can begin to tell us, because it won't have that fulfilling feeling anymore. It won't have that sense of ease or effortless presence anymore, because somehow, somewhere, what's happening has suddenly stopped being quite okay. And at that point, our response can be one of two things. It can be, which it often is, if we've really learned how to strive in our lives, it's not right, so you put out more effort. But again, this effort is skewed. It's expectation, so it's push, push, push. And we're not meeting what's happening. We're not meeting the breath. We're not meeting an emotion. We're not meeting the pain. We're pushing at it. We're hammering at it. We're trying to shift it. And it's really exhausting. It really withers our heart and mind. 'Cause the other the other extreme is let's just blow this off. It isn't happening. But first one I, I want to talk first about this point when the effort gets a little bit skewed, but you think you're still really trying very wholeheartedly. And it can be very deceptive. It can really fool us. Um, get this sense of pushing, pushing, bring up my effort, meet it every moment. But because it's skewed, because we're trying to make something happen, this effort, efforting we're putting out is not skillful means. Skillful means is maybe adjusting the way we're relating, not to change the arising appearance, but simply to find again that balance of relaxation and attention. The example the Buddha gave in talking about finding this balance of effort is he talked about, he was talking to a person who who made lutes or an instrument like a lute, like a guitar. He was very skillful in who he would talk to. He could always find the thing that would exactly meet the way their mind worked. So he gave the example of a lute, that it has to be tuned just right to sound good. And you can make it a little bit tighter and that might help, but if you keep going, just tighter, tighter, tighter doesn't necessarily work. Eventually the string will snap. But if it's a little bit too tight and you loosen it a little bit and then it sounds fine. But if we think, well, loosening is the way to go, so then we loosen, 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 loosen until you can't play the string at all. And even though you can get it at perfect pitch, you play it a little while and the the pitch changes again and you have to again check it out. And you can't assume, well, last time I loosened it, so this time I should loosen it. You don't know. You have to play it. You have to see what's the conditions right now. Is it too tight, too loose? Try a little bit, you tighten it. No, no, it was too tight, so you loosen it. And it's really being very immediate to looking what's happening right now, finding that balance, learning how to play. And we usually learn by going too far one way, seeing how painful that is that it doesn't work. We might go a little too far the other way, and then we come back into balance. I really I really got this one time in my own practice, a sense of how it can it can look like perfect practice, total effort, and it can be dry and torturous and you don't recognize it. I was doing a retreat um, with Sayada Upandita, who Joseph's mentioned. So he is a real kind of taskmaster. You don't go there and and he's not gonna some of the things I'm gonna say later about opening up and go out in nature, you're not gonna hear that. From Upandita. so it's very easy to tighten the string and tighten the string and tighten the string until you're about to snap, and you know not really get any other kind of feedback. So I practiced with him often before, and I could just be—I can be very present, noting you note every single movement, every single thing you're doing from the morning you get up until the moment you go to bed. The day before this retreat started, I talked to my mother on the phone, and she told me she'd just been diagnosed with cancer. And she was going to about ten days into the retreat have uh, a mastectomy and a hysterectomy, and she, and I said, of course, well, I'm coming home. She said, no, you're not. I don't want you to come home. No way. You have to do this retreat. This is my mother, who's not really into sitting, but she was, and she's usually not that firm. She said, I will not. I do not want you to come home. So, all right, you know, I try. Okay. She doesn't <laughs> want me here. I won't come home. So I went and started the retreat. And, uh, I mean, I was calling home every day, and that was fine. It wasn't sending my mind spinning or something. So I thought I was fully present. So I was doing this retreat perfect to form, you know, from the moment I got up to the moment I went to bed. It looked perfect. I felt like I was really putting out complete balanced effort, and it was getting more and more dry and arid. And I didn't really quite realize how bad it was until about three weeks in, I was, coming up the stairs where I would always do walking in this certain hallway. And I thought... And this wasn't just one of these passing thoughts. i really, This thought I really bought into. I thought, if someone's walking there, I'm leaving the retreat. And I really meant it. <laughs> and I opened the door and no one was walking there. I thought, oh, I have to stay. <laughs> oh, something's going on here that I'm really not, not noticing. It woke me up, you know. And um, I really saw that. I can... It can look like to yourself, never mind anyone else, but to yourself that the effort you're putting out is really there, really balanced. I was meeting every moment, I, you know. But that it can, if it's not really springing from your heart, if it's not really springing from within, it won't, it won't work. So in a way, what I was doing was putting in an effort to match an outer appearance of how the practice is supposed to be, how I knew the practice is supposed to be. And I could conform to that. But there wasn't a true interest in it springing from myself, from my heart. It was was really 50% show, you know. And when I saw that, because half of me was home with my mother. That's where I really felt I should be. And actually, after that, I did go home. I left the retreat and went home. And she's fine. She's been fine ever since. And I stayed home for some days. It was the right thing to do. And then I went back and I was totally present. And it was like a six or eight week retreat. And I was totally present there for the rest of the retreat. Really different, really, you know, not always joyous, but the interest was there. It was springing from myself. So really seeing that in the beginning we can think right effort means to match the form perfectly. But if we're doing it with this outer forcing, it's going to wither wither our heart wither our mind you know we're not going to be able to keep it up and something will wake us up to that so a lot of our practice is learning how to find this balance because when there's the uh, real balance of interest in the mind the mind is bright It's, it's interested in being with what is happening and there's a patience a willingness just an ease to just come up and meet what is difficult if there's not that, you know, balance of effort and interest coming from inside ourselves, we won't be able to meet what is difficult. Because as you've seen, when there's painful or unpleasant sensations or emotions or any kind of experience, when it comes up, the mind's immediate reaction is to kind of shrink away, to fall back. You know, that's the first reaction of aversion. Also, when Joseph was talking about uh, sloth and torpor light last night, the tendency of the mind is to kind of just pull back, shrink away, fall down. And if there's energy, if there's interest in energy, that serves as a support to the mind. So when there's a tendency to shrink back, the energy can come in, that balance that can be fed by interest, and, oh, you can come back and meet it. Like a lot of people have reported how some kind of difficult experience that tends to come and go, but often throughout the day, that, for example, in the morning, there's a kind of a freshness. There's more energy and it's easier to really meet that experience and be there with it. And later in the day, there's not that freshness. The energy is lower and so it doesn't give the support and the tendency of the mind to shrink away and get fatigued is stronger. And then there's just not that energy there to balance it. And we don't quite know at that point how to find that energy again. <clears throat> but... In the times before we've gotten so fatigued from really fighting or struggling with something difficult, in that first moment of coming to something difficult, a pain, anger, a difficult emotion, and there's that tendency to shrink away, you can see, again, why we say it's not necessarily being kind to yourself to give in to that. Because that shrinking could just be for a moment we can summon Mindfulness, interest, and energy and come back and meet that and it's not even a difficulty anymore. But if we just get into that tendency when it first arises it's really as Joseph was saying it's that sloth and torpor but it just leads to more fatigue more disconnection and we really get lost. (coughs) This is from Thomas Merton. These words might seem a little strong I would just call it the mind shrinking away. He's calling it laziness and cowardice. Laziness and cowardice are two of the greatest enemies of the spiritual life, and they are most dangerous of all when they mask themselves as discretion. This illusion would not be so fatal if discretion itself were not one of the most important virtues of a spiritual person. Indeed, it is discretion itself that must teach us the difference between cowardice or the shrinking back and discretion laziness and cowardice put our own present comfort before the love of God or I'd say the love of truth they fear the uncertainty of the future because they place no trust in God discretion warns us against wasted effort but but for the coward all effort is wasted effort Discretion shows us where effort is wasted and when it is necessary. Laziness flies from all risk. Discretion flies from useless risk, but urges us on to take the risks that faith and the grace of God demand of us. us. Sooner or later, if we follow Christ, we have to risk everything in order to gain everything. We have to gamble on the invisible and risk all that we can see and taste and feel. But we know the risk is worth it because there is nothing more insecure than the transient world. For this world as we see it is passing away. So it's different language from our language we use in Buddhism but that same feeling. The discretion is our skillful means. Knowing when the shrinking away of mind is really what he's calling laziness or cowardice or I would just call low energy or our tendency to avoid. And discretion can bring us back in to be with what is happening in a gentle way. Discretion can also tell us when the energy is low and the mindfulness is not present and what is happening is too painful, is too ongoing when the mind is withering from constant battering against the painful whether it be physical or emotional and that by continuing to try and meet it with an effort that's a little askew we're only going to bring on a sense of defeat a sense of frustration and greater pain and at that point discretion says move the attention away this is not cowardice and this is not laziness This is skillful means born of clear seeing that there are times when the energy is not balanced enough and we're somehow caught in struggle and the only way to come out of that tightness is to move the attention away altogether. I'm trying to decide to put in a whole other piece or not. That's what I'm doing right now. so even when we uh, have the times when we have a deep commitment to be with what is so in our practice it might be something very painful and there is a genuine wanting to understand it you know we're not kind of giving in we're not our motivation can be quite pure quite sincere but somehow just creeping in we've gotten uh, just trying too hard tightening the string too much coming at the pain coming at the emotion sometimes it might be that uh, a well of grief or a well of memory or a well of terror a well of physical pain opens up in us and it just comes so strongly that it seems that we're drowning We're just drowning in it. Or we're somehow so wanting to be with it that we keep on battering it and getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And at these times, it's skillful means, it's discretion that tells us we're losing the spaciousness. In fact, spaciousness is a word that hardly seems relevant at times like that. We just feel like we're being engulfed. It's important to open to difficulty and suffering yes and we've talked a lot about that and in fact one of the ways that we can cultivate a commitment and interest when it starts to flag one of the classical ways that's taught is to reflect on to really consciously reflect on the suffering in ourselves and in the world Not, this is not like morbid, how to make ourselves miserable. This is when we're sitting there and go, why should I bother paying attention? You know, what's the point? I've been looking, I've been looking, what am I doing this for? And there's classical reflections that bring up a sense of commitment, a sense of urgency. One is on the eminence of death, the fact of impermanence. It kind of awakens a sense of, I don't have time to waste, you know. Tuning into our own suffering or the suffering in the world around is sort of what is sometimes called the defects of samsara, of this round of birth and death. It somehow doesn't quite work in the way we think. Um, Another reflection is actually on the, the preciousness of the birth of our human life. And for everyone here, just by virtue of the fact that we have the time and the willingness and the interest to be here, and we're really incredibly graced out of all the possibilities for the existence we could have on this planet. There's so, as we all know, so many people whose suffering is so intense that that even the thought, the possibility of beginning to explore the nature of themselves and the nature of truth just seems too far away. Where all of life is engaged in a struggle just to eat. Going to Asia is a wonderful reminder for me of this, both of awakening to the immensity of suffering on this planet which kind of spurs me to see what can i do in my little way to at least at least not bring more suffering to the planet if i can do something to alleviate that even better but also a sense of such gratitude and appreciation for the uh, the health the willingness to really look at what is true the opportunity and there's many people who have both the health the opportunity and just plain aren't interested just plain aren't interested. When we go to Bodh Gaya, it really struck me. Joseph mentioned Bodh Gaya the other night, where the Buddha was enlightened. And there's people like the people who run the chai shop where we hang out, who they've lived there all their lives. And there's streams of Buddhist pilgrims coming and going, and all kinds of teaching, and all the Tibetan lamas, and any Buddhist who's anybody comes through there at some point, as do Hindus, as do all kinds of uh, spiritual people. And then he's you know, living and running the chai shop and he's not really too interested. It's just not not a priority. It's just just not a particular value. So even to have it as an interest, we're so blessed. So when I reflect on that, it's one of the classic reflections. It can bring up a motivation. Okay, okay, I'll go back and be with my knee pain. You know, I don't have so much to fetch about after all. So there's a way that opening to suffering really brings up this sense of spiritual urgency. If we open to it, not in the way of drowning, not in the way of, oh my God, this is unbearable, but we meet it as an inspiration. There's a, a, a Thai teacher who recently died, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who said that uh, there's suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And it's not the particular suffering, it's in our attitude. So when we really open and see what's around us that can and in us that can again bring us back to this interest this motivation to again investigate to be interested in what's happening for us. And we can be in the same situation and with, get so complacent that it can be really helpful sometimes to bring in these reflections. About I think 10 or 11 years ago You've probably heard of uh, John Kabat-Zinn by now and his, his stress reduction program that he does in the University of Massachusetts Hospital in Worcester, which happens to be very near Barry, where our meditation center is, and he, been for a period of eight weeks, once a week, seriously ill patients who've been in the hospital who are referred to his program by doctors who basically can't do anything else. So they might have ongoing chronic pain, they might have cancer, they might have anxiety, all different things. But basically very serious ongoing pain and stress that the medical profession can't help them with anymore. And what they teach in this program without any of the Buddhist terminology is basically just the meditation that we've been doing here. And, uh, and they have each, with each program uh, a group of interns which people who can come and sit in on the program who aren't particularly patients but you just go through it exactly the same and just see how it's done. So about 11 years ago, I was managing the retreat center, and with my uh, friend, the other manager, another dear friend who was cooking, we did this internship program. And it was so fascinating. What I learned the most about was complacency and the the uh, power that comes from real spiritual urgency. So we went in... Uh, definitely complacent. Well, we know this meditation stuff. We not only work in a meditation center, we've been doing it for 15 years, yada, yada. We would come in, come into the class, and while he'd be doing the meditations, have us lying down, and the patients are really getting into it, we would fall asleep. And then we'd have to do it, listen to this tape. It was a body scan tape every night at home. I don't, he would start at the feet. I don't think I ever got higher than my knee without falling asleep. I don't normally fall asleep every time I meditate, but I just didn't have this, and we come home exhausted and with headaches and really stressed out. Actually, we got really stressed out from doing this. And the people in the program were having amazing experiences. I remember what one woman said after like four weeks. I mean, they're only coming to this for three hours a week and listening to this, doing this 45 minutes a day of meditation. That's all. After the fourth week, a woman says, I've had about four migraines a week for the last some amount of years and I haven't had a migraine now. For two or three weeks and my friends and we just looked at each other we were going home splitting headaches from this <laughs> you know <laughs> and we knew it you know we already knew it so there was something both about the freshness but i think it's even more the motivation the being faced with pain and suffering that you've been told the medical profession you believe in to help you has basically said sorry folks we can't do anything So it's like, oh, we've really got to look. I've got to wake up. I've got to see what's going on. It was profound. And it continues in that way to this day. And you can see how I came out of that thinking, what am I waiting for? Do I have to wait until I get a terminal uh, disease before I really start paying attention to my wife? I mean, we all have a terminal diagnosis anyway. And we actually, just because we might feel like we're healthy now, the truth is that who knows what's going to happen when we walk out of the store, you know? And I just take it so for granted. So that's sort of a way that opening to suffering doesn't have to be overwhelming. It can really be an inspiration to us to again get interested. And again, opening to suffering in the bigger picture like this, or in our practice when there's something happening, that's what I started to say before I took this digression, when there's something happening that we're trying to open to, but it's just too much. Or sometimes the suffering in the world, or the suffering in our life, or people around us, is just more than we can be with at that time. And there's going to be times like that for all of us in our practice, in our life, where I'll stick to practice for now where you just feel like you're either beating your head against the wall or you're drowning, just drowning in the suffering. And it seems like it's all futile and pointless. The idea of effortless attention, of interest, of a kind of joy and fulfillment in practice is like a totally alien idea. Part of what's happening is we're leaving the comfort zone. When we begin to open and pay attention as Joseph was saying whenever it was maybe this morning but anyway as we get more concentrated things that we didn't notice before really start to come into our field of attention and with the practice of paying attention we don't really have an out of running away so we, it looms larger and larger relieving the comfort zone that we've set up for ourselves and we've all found ways in our life to try and stay comfortable of course that keeps us restricted it keeps us in denial And the only way of opening is by coming out of the comfort zone. But sometimes, sometimes it's just too much. And the skillful means, the discretion, is knowing that the most skillful thing you can do is take your attention away from that difficulty and turn it to something else. Pushing, pushing, pushing is not necessarily the answer. In fact, it usually isn't. Grimness and heaviness is not balanced effort. If you're feeling really grim and heavy, I'd say it's like 98% possibility that you're pushing too hard or that something's going on you can't quite see or be with and that the skillful thing to do at that time would be to take your attention and turn it elsewhere. It's hard for most of us to believe this because generally, in my experience, when that grimness comes in and I'm pushing so hard because something isn't right, What's also come in is a sense of self-judgment. It's not right because I'm not doing it right, because I don't understand the practice, because I don't have balanced efforts, because whatever. And in that state of self-judgment, which I'm very familiar with personally, if you don't recognize its presence, that self-judgment is going to filter any evaluation you make of what's going on. So when you're pushing and you're in self-judgment, I'm not doing it right, it's my fault, and if someone says, you know, it's too heavy, you need to back off, you need to open up, your mind will never believe it. No, I'm being a wimp. Wimps don't open up. Clearly the schedule is sit-walk, sit-walk. That's for a reason, and if I don't do it, it's somehow I'm not good enough, I'm not doing it right. A lot of what we do on meditation retreats is beg people to back off because it's really hard for someone to get it, that that's the most skillful thing to do, that that is good practice at that time. Thich Nhat Hanh, again, talks a lot about how it's important to open to suffering, but when we're drowning, we need to consciously bring up seeds of joy. So sometimes that means here, in a way, we're graced. It's one of the reasons it's so helpful to do a meditation retreat in such a beautiful environment. Because the balance, the potential for opening to joy, to touching what is beautiful, to bringing in the spaciousness of heart and mind, that is accessible to us pretty immediately. So when you're feeling this gripping, this heaviness, you're just pounding your head against the wall, go outside, take a walk, go down and sit by the river, open up your senses. You know, smell all the different smells of the grasses and the wildflowers. Just listen to the birds. Watch them playing. You know, watch Miss Faye roaming around here looking for scraps. Watch Elvis, the dog, who Franz and I decided he's the perfect impersonation and manifestation of restlessness, of restless <laughs> energy. If you want to see what restless energy is, watch him down by the river. He can't sit still. He can't follow one thing for one second. <laughs> it's really really great it makes you laugh it's great bring in some joy some lightness it's the most skillful thing you can do at those times it's not a diversion it's not cheating it's not you know wrong in this practice to be happy to have joy we need it we need it because it's the only way we can find the balance to open to how painful things can be at times the two really support each other So, if you even have the suspicion that things are too grim, give it a try. Go out, open up, and just be with what is. Not with clinging. Appreciation of things as they are. Not with clinging. And you can tell when the clinging comes in because the joy kind of stops. I had an experience again at this place in South Africa. It was beautifully landscaped, the retreat center, and they had the paths were lined with huge bushes of white, very white and delicate lavender irises. And mostly it was bushes, but one day that it was really hot, and they just all bloomed, and it was so exquisite. So I came out, I just was looking at that, and just drinking it in, just beautiful, so happy, the joy. And then there was this one moment where it went, this is so beautiful. It'll only last a day. I wish I had a camera. Maybe I could get a camera. I can take a picture and then I can really preserve it and then I can show it to my friends. And I really got into this. Got to find a camera. Got to preserve it. It's so beautiful. Well, I was no longer appreciating it at all. I was totally caught in clinging and it wasn't pleasant, you know. But somehow if we don't notice that, we think we're still appreciating. So just be kind of have an eye out for that when you go out. And when it stops being joy and it turns to clinging. Or, on the other hand, it stops being awareness of joy and you're just totally spacing out and you're walking, but you're not aware of anything. You know, you're just thinking again. Then that's gone too far in the openness direction and it's time to come back and sit or do your walking meditation. But anyway, I just want to beg you all to know that, that opening, changing the attention, opening to hearing is one thing to do in the sitting opening to the whole of nature is the next way when it's really getting too tight and trust it pay attention to the effects if you do it and you feel a sense of more spacious and ease you can come back and sit a little easier it's helpful you go out and do it and find all you want to do is keep walking and in fact you think you'll just walk right on out of here then that might not have been what you (laughs) needed in that moment you know it's a delicate balance and you have to just pay attention how tight is the string So I just want to end on that note with a poem by Rio Khan sort of embodies to me that sense of just the presence and appreciation of nature but that comes when we're really interested and attuned. And the same can be tuned to ourselves. A Poem of Early Fall After a night of rain water covers the village path This morning, the thick grass by my hut is cool. In the window, distant mountains the color of blue-green jade. Outside, a river flows like shimmering silk. Under a cliff near my hut, I wash out my sore ear with pure spring water. In the trees, cicadas recite their fall verse. I had prepared my robe and staff for a walk. But the quiet beauty keeps me here. So let's explore the quiet beauty in ourselves for a few minutes.